Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg. We make a lot of assumptions about people born around the same time. Like, boomers don't care about climate change. Millennials are all about me. Gen Zers are digitalites who can't really make eye contact. These stereotypes make great headlines, but they're not necessarily true. In fact, they might get history all wrong. We'll dig into what really shapes people born around the same time, and we will separate generational cliches from reality. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. As families come together this week for Thanksgiving, it's timely to talk about the assumptions we have about different generations, like boomers have all the money or millennials are just fragile snowflakes. Social researcher Bobby Duffy explores the science or the potentially fake science behind these stereotypes in his new book, The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. Duffy joins us now to debunk labels and to dig into what really challenges different generations. Welcome, Bobby Duffy. Great to be here. Thank you, Leslie. I'm curious, who gets to decide the name of a generation? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question. It's um, the generations that we're most familiar with today, uh, things like baby boomers, Generation X, Millennials, and Gen Z, they all come from different sorts of sources. So you could say that baby boomers did come from a a kind of an official source in the US census. Um, But, you know, Gen X was very much more a cultural definition that came from the Douglas Copeland book of of the same name. Uh, And then uh, millennials came from another source, more to do with the point in time in which they were born. But they they kind of grow up fairly organically, or at least they have in more uh, recent years. But for every successful generational naming, there are dozens, if not more, of failed attempts at naming a generation. It's something we're really focused on, nearly obsessed by, who's going to name the next generation? What does that mean? What does that tell you about what that generation is? And um, we're, the recent history in particular is littered with these failed attempts of trying to link a particular generation, say, to a particular type of technology, mm-hmm. uh, the Nintendo generation or the TikTok generation. When actually, I mean, it's, a, it's one of the sort of symbols of where we've gone a bit wrong in our generational thinking. Um, 
generational divides and differences are about really big things that happen in the economy and society, but we get quite obsessed by these small differences between generations and, and think they signify much more than they really do. And so then when do we know who has won? When do we for, finally sort of <laughs> land on it? And is there an official source of sort of determining that? No, there's never a complete agreement in terms of who's, who's the final arbiter of what do we call all these generations? Because there are different names for Gen Z right now, and there's different names still for millennials, particularly when you look at, across uh, uh, different countries. So no, it's much more of the, one of those cultural conversations where norms get adopted through osmosis and we just kind of get used to those types, but there's, there's no final arbiter. And I, I think, again, that's quite important. In Some academics are very suspicious of these labels and whether they add anything to our discussion or actually uh, distract us from it. So they they are uh, trying to get people to move away from this uh, obsession with the labeling. But I think in some ways that misses the point because a lot of these uh, differences, these stories we tell ourselves about who we are as a generation and who other generations are is a very deep human need to tell stories about ourselves. And that's really what a lot of the use of these generational labels ends up being, pretty much fairly simplistic stories. Well, let's talk about some of those stories. If we go back in history a little bit to the silent generation, these are folks Mm. born between 1928 and 1945. What Mm. are some of the ideas, labels, cliches, stereotypes, maybe truths about this generation? Yeah, that's a good place to start. And it is, and, and it does point to the importance of generations. And I think the the central theme of the book is that generational thinking, there's nothing wrong with generational thinking. It's a really big idea that you see the biggest thinkers in sociology and philosophy put a lot of store on generational change and difference. And that silent generation is is a good example of why it's important because they they did grow up in a very different environment, socially, culturally, economically. And that shows that shines through in a lot of their attitudes and behaviors. So some of the big difference you'll see um, between that generation and more recent generations are a lot about the cultural norms that they grew up with, about what's a, what is a woman's role, whether it's to look after the home or to go out and work, what's their views on homosexuality, uh, what's their views on race, and all sorts of other things. We see that that dividing line um, is, is often quite strong between that silent generation on some of those cultural issues and baby boomers and the generations that came after uh, that. And that's, that is, on average, uh, across this uh, big cohort of people. It's not saying that everyone is like that within that cohort, but you can see these real defined trends in less comfort with social and cultural change among that oldest cohort. I mean, but as as a recent New Yorker article, you know, that, that was just released from Louis mm. Manan, he, he pointed out that there's some pretty striking nonconformists in this group. We've got people like Gloria Steinem, Muhammad Ali, Nina Simone, Bob Dylan, Noam Chomsky. These are definitely not conformists. So when you don't match your particular generational stereotypes, are you an outlier or is the name wrong? I think it's, a, again, a really interesting way to think about it because it's like any social classification in my mind where whether you, whether you have it by uh, income or social class or your political grouping or even age more, more simply, where we draw the lines and boundaries 
between all those types of social classifications is arbitrary to some degree, um, but whether you're high income, low income, um, et cetera, et cetera, there is no hard boundaries uh, within that. And you cannot predict what, what everyone within that grouping is going to be like on the basis of the average of that group, whatever that social classification is. So we've got to treat these as indicators of um, averages and trends within the population and, and not get to the point where you think that it defines you. And that's some of the, some of the bad trends in generational um, analysis, or at least how it's discussed in commentary, is that we do tend to move towards trying to sum up whole generations in a, just a handful of adjectives, whether that's selfish baby boomers or narcissistic um, millennials or uh, whatever it is, whatever those kind of um, adjectives are, gives a, you know, gives a really false sense of consistency across what is huge proportions of the population. So if they're not particularly helpful, sometimes are generations or these divisions, these sort of 15 to 18 year groupings, Hmm. what are they helpful for? I think they are helpful in in the sense of going back to the point about every most of the big sociology and philosophy thinkers about how societies change would always have a role for generational change within their thinking. And it's because we're more malleable and change more during our formative years in our uh, late teens, early adulthood, around that kind of time of life that what, what is happening then shapes us. More. It's not that we don't change at all after that, but that that formative experience is, is really important. So that kind of builds in this uh, cohort on cohort, generation on generation change as you get more malleable, flexible young people coming through and changing cultures, norms, behaviours. So some of the things that looking at society through a generational lens is really, really important. And the main theme of the book, if you had to sum up the book in uh, one main theme, it's that Generational thinking is a really big idea that's been horribly corrupted by terrible stereotypes, myths, and cliches. So it's not the idea that's wrong, it's more its application. Um, because you can't you can't really understand um, how society has changed and will change if you don't understand generations. If there, if there truly is something different between the generations, because the oldest generation is dying out and the youngest generation is replacing them that is really important to understand for how society changes and then you know really practically we have seen some incredible generation on generation shifts in the economic fortunes of different generations with it getting harder for more recent cohorts of people coming through into more stagnant uh, wage positions into uh, more difficulty in, uh, in increasing their wealth. All those types of trends are real. So those big things about how the economy is changing, how our life chances are changing, do have a really important generational aspect to them. If we just kind of stay with the historical timeline and we go from the silent generation, next generation is the baby boomers. Mm. Where, does, where does that name come from and how and when did that sort of get cemented? Well, this is the one generation that is based on a a demographic reality where there was a baby boom in uh, the US and lots of other countries um, around the world post-war. And, you know, it's a bit more complicated than that in the demography because there was kind of more than one baby boom. But if you lump that group together, uh, it was a big cohort 
of uh, people coming through at the same sort of age. And that's really important. Like the size of your cohort is important. And it used to be thought in the early days of thinking about generations, it used to be thought that being part of a big cohort was a bad thing for you because mm. there'd be more competition for resources, whether it's education or jobs or housing or whatever else. But actually what happens is, uh, particularly for this baby boomer generation, that creates more demand and you get this economic growth cycle where that baby boomer generation ended up being pretty fortunate economically. Um, so that is a reality that you could look at in terms of the proportion of wealth, for example, that is owned by the baby boomer generation. Um, when they were uh, an average age of 45, they owned 40% of the US uh, private wealth. When Gen X were 45, average age of 45, they owned 15% of the nation's uh, wow. wealth. So these are not small differences between um, the cohorts. So these, those types of uh, realities, economic and demographic realities are an important part of baby boomers story where they have had uh, fortunate timing in terms of them coming through. And then, and some would also argue um that because they're a big cohort, that makes them electorally more valuable. They, there are a large number of them and they vote uh, at high levels. So it tends to be the case that policy, government policy, will bend towards their interests. And that's not to do with them being a generation of sociopaths, as some of the books um, <laughs> uh, lay out. It's, uh, it's just this mechanical uh, aspect that. of yeah, size, size and voting uh, prevalence that they, that they have. We're talking about generational stereotypes with Bobby Duffy. He's the author of The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. He's also a professor of public policy, and he's the director of the Policy Institute at King's College in London. We want to hear from you. Share your thoughts. Are there real differences between generations do you think when you're born shapes who you are and how? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome to Forum again. I'm Leslie McClurg. We're talking about generational stereotypes with Bobby Duffy. He's the author of The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. And we left off there with boomers. Let's move to Gen Xers, which I think you and I both are. And I have to admit, I've always felt pretty good about being an, a Gen Xer because, um, as you pointed out, we're kind of 
you know, there's not a lot of bad stereotypes about us. But I guess if you think about it a little bit deeper, we're also the overlooked kind of middle child. In fact, apparently we're so irrelevant that people can't even be bothered to hate us. Why did we get so kind of forgotten? So I love that. As a yeah, so it's quite ironic that I've got a generational obsession, but come from a generation that no one talks about at all. And it's um, I think it is that middle, partly that middle child status where we've got two cultural and demographic behemoths of baby boomers and millennials on either side of us. Too much bigger cohorts, and um, uh, but also I think I think there is an element of timing because um, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about millennials next, but um, they had bad luck in terms of, well, in so many ways, but in terms of timing with um, social media in particular, we kind of came of age before. Right before. Before, right before. So we kind of missed out on all the memes and uh, social media discussion of how dumb we were <laughs> as, <laughs> as uh, kids. I mean, this is, this is one of the constants of human history, is that we always denigrate the latest generation of young people um, all the way back to Socrates. You can go back to 400 BC. Socrates really disliked the young people of his day, saying that they uh, lacked lacked manners, um, disrespected their elders, just loved luxury, he talked about, which is you know, it's pretty similar to um, what you would hear about young people today. We've always got that sense that young people are going downhill, but we sort of missed it a bit. We did get the more slacker generation type um, memes about us, but it didn't really take off in the same sort of way. And so if we learn, then look, since we got skipped, we'll just, we'll just move on then to millennials. <laughs> let's, not, let's not talk about the bad stereotypes. We, we missed it. We're great. Uh, if we move to uh, millennials, or it kind of seems like that generation is still being named because there's you know, millennials or Gen Y or, or maybe maybe Gen Z. It seems like these next two generations that are alive today are still we're still working out the kinks in terms of the you know, official term. But if we use millennials, this is 1980 yeah. to 1996. What are they sort of known for? I mean, I have this idea that there's kind of the narcissistic obsessed with material goods. But what is true about millennials? Yeah, yeah no, they, they did get quite a bit of the brunt of um, the stereotypes and, and a lot of them are not based on truth, um, uh, any kind of evidence. So the materialism one is an interesting one because that that is a classic example of mixing up different types of effects that change us as individuals and as society. So very briefly, you have these generational or cohort effects where one generation stays different is different and stays different from each other but you also have a second effect called life cycle effects where we change as we age and then there's a third type of effect um, called a period effect where what's happening at any particular time can affect all of us like a pandemic or an economic crisis and that changes societies too so that materialism one is is very much a life cycle effect so you can look at survey questions that ask uh, different generations about how much focus they have on being rich or owning material things. And if you took a slice of the population when millennials were young, it would look like millennials were particularly focused on material things. But if you roll it on a few years when millennials who are no longer young on average and um, getting into their 40s at the oldest, you'll see that their focus on material things declined as they aged. And it's more of a life cycle. We, we get very focused on those types of things as young people. And then I can show you repeated patterns through 
Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z, where young people come in very focused on the material and then grow up a little and move on from that type of thing. So it's not a generation, it's not, doesn't define millennials as a generation, despite lots of headlines calling them me, me, me generation and lots of other things. We're just, we will always see those headlines repeated about the next generation of young people because that's more of a life cycle pattern. Are they then really snowflakes? So this is the idea that they came of age when helicopter parents were sort of circling Mm. above them, protecting them from, you know, the ills of the world. And so therefore they are a little more fragile than the rest of Mm. us. Does that come to bear as true? That's a really interesting one because there's a couple of dimensions maybe to that. So I think there is some truth in the fact that millennials and then Gen Z after them are growing up a little slower. Um, and that's there's some really good <clears throat> big picture things that help cause that. So they stay in education longer. Uh, they're less likely to have jobs um, in advance of uh, leaving college. Um, they have spend more time with their parents. Uh, all of those types of um, more intensive parenting aspects of things. And that means there's all sorts of knock-on effects of leaving home later, um, starting jobs later, obviously, having uh, getting married later, having kids later. So there's, there's a trend called delayed adulthood, which I think is important for uh, young people today. It's just we are going a bit slower through the stages that you would have gone through, um, that all people go through, or most people go through, um, uh, but you're just going through it a bit later. I think that's slightly separate from the kind of uh, sense of... Uh, social justice warrior type um, focus on protecting themselves from ideas or being worried about uh, social and cultural issues or being at the leading edge of social and cultural change. That's a kind of different trend where actually we always think young people are right at the uh, leading edge of um, issues like uh, equality around sexuality or gender identity or or other aspect other social and cultural issues but that's always the case and actually the gaps between uh, millennials and gen z and their parents uh, and baby boomers and their parents are no different um, we haven't seen this increase in a snowflake generation that is worrying about um offence or, or or being uh, worrying about older people being out of touch with the leading edge of cultural change. That is a misdefinition of it that, that's much more to do, I, I would say, with the period effect that we have a social media and a media that's much more fractious and divided these days. So we get to hear about the extreme examples of snowflake type behaviour now in a way that we wouldn't in the past but it doesn't represent um, a real generation-on-generation change. We're talking about generational stereotypes with Bobby Duffy. He's the author of the Generation Myth, and he's also the professor of the public policy. He's also a professor of public policy and the director of the Policy Institute at King's College in London. We have an interesting comment here, I think, from Michael that really sort of applies to millennials. I think he writes. It's all marketing, isn't it? I don't think people in general are that interested or having that much invested in distinguishing between one generation and another generation. But marketers have fulfilled the phrase, create a need, and we will fill it. So so what do you think about that in terms of, is this all just marketing? I think that's an excellent point and very astute in the sense of, yes, absolutely. There is um, incentives for people to exaggerate um differences between generations uh all sorts of different ones there are the ones where 
you do have consultants who call themselves millennial consultants or millennial experts or Gen Z consultants or Gen Z experts. In fact, there's like you, 400 of them on, on LinkedIn, <laughs> you pointed out. Yes, exactly. So you've got, there's a little mini industry of people who will tell you there's a big problem or difference here in order to solve that problem, um, sell you a solution to that problem. Um, so that is absolutely true. And I think it, but it then does go wider than that into um, that's, you know, so Wall Street Journal measured that at 70 million dollars per annum a few years ago so that's not that's, that's a reasonably large amount of money but it's not massive business i think the the real thing is that it's these millennia these millennials gen z all the labels are kind of built into the stories that marketing research advertising research uh, advertising generally um uh, portrays that uh, it's uh, we get endless releases press releases and headlines written about um using these labels to sum up whole generations of people so it's kind of built itself into the system um the shorthand that we use uh to describe other groups and that's the kind of real mechanism now that it becomes this self-sustaining system where uh it, it tells good stories people click on those stories about millennials killing something millennials are always killing something baby boomers are always ruining something there's and people click on those headlines and it creates this uh system where obviously if we click on it we're going to get more of more of those types of stories well let's go to a call now uh from janet in san rafael janet you're on the air hi thank you you can hear me i can hear you great yeah i you know something that's always been real curious to me is what about the role that your family or your parenting, the people who parent you play? Because you could be born, like I was born in 1965, but my parents are obviously of another generation. And so you're taking in the values of those people. And, you know, I, I mean, I just think of like a lot of the formal things like standing up when an older person walked in the room and and also, you know, getting a job in high school and those kinds of expectations, those come, you know, from the parents, I think, in a great deal. And then a lot of, then there's the cultural part, your peers and what's happening in society that forms your generation. I mean, I can imagine this sort of, you know, goes out to whether or not your parents are religious or, you know, very religious or not religious. So, Bobby, how do you how do you think about the role of, of parenting? Yeah, and no, I think, Janet, um, is a very important point. And I guess that that is the point about our formative years being really important to us. So the values and behaviors that our parents pass on to us in those uh, teens and, and early adulthood in particular is really important in forming our worldviews. And, and this is one of the things about uh, some of the myths and cliches about generations, particularly try to put one generation against another in some sort of conflict. And it doesn't really work very well partly because, as Janet says, we've got incredibly strong connections up and down the generations through our families. We have stronger connections that way in many ways than with our peers. Um, so the kind of stirring of intergenerational conflict doesn't really land very well, even though it's quite quite a theme in um, uh, in lots of the coverage when there was a big, big, lots of big headlines over COVID when it first came out about how this was going to create a generational war 
because older people were more likely to be susceptible to serious illness, younger people more likely to feel the economic effects of COVID, uh, of uh, of all the restrictions. Um, so, it, but nothing ever happened like that. What we saw was really a incredibly um, uh, connected and uh, self uh, supportive environment across the age ranges. It was, it was small examples of people flouting uh, and using uh, uh, horrible terms about um, COVID. But very rare, and really, the the underlying theme was young people being incredibly compliant with the restrictions that were required of them. So it's very, very difficult to put a division between uh, from one generational group onto another generational group just because of the strength of those connections. Gotcha. Well, I would like to uh, bring in more callers, so please give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or shoot us an email uh, to forum at kqed.org. We want to know, are there real differences between generations? Do you think when you're born shapes who you are? And what do people get wrong about your generation? I don't want to leave out the Gen Zers as we're moving through mm. history. So these are folks who were born between 1997 and 2012. I thought it was interesting. There was a recent New York Times article that's titled, uh, the 37-year-olds are afraid of the 23-year-olds who work for them. And, and the idea there is basically that there's this new boldness in these Gen Zers and how they communicate their needs to their bosses. Is that true? No, not really. <laughs> I mean, it's... Um... It's workplace myths about generations are some of the worst um, that you'll see. There's always this sense that there's been a break between the generations as each new generation comes through. And it's partly that point about that's also where you'll get most of the consultants trying to sell you how to engage with Gen Z seminars or um, uh, whatever it is that they're they're focusing on. But no, I mean, it is there, there's obviously differences between what, uh, employees want or how they behave at different ages but that's always the case you've always mm. got um, those differences and and the academic work on this uh, suggests that the actual true generational difference as in why young if young people of today's generation are different from young people of previous generation shows that there's just about no real difference in uh, how they approach work it may feel like that to us um, but it's kind of partly because we forget that we were also annoying and or demanding as employees, as young people as well. Um, and we kind of we got this rosy retrospection for our own time where we weren't like that, when actually it's um, there's not really been that nearly as much shift. And that's not to say that things don't change. They obviously do. And those kind of slow incremental cultural changes in work as there are elsewhere. But trying to set it up as one generation is entirely different from um, the previous generation of young people is just wrong. I can just picture my, it's hilarious, the picture of myself, like 25-year-olds, <laughs> just walking very confidently into my boss's office, telling him that this show that was on the air should definitely not be on the air. <laughs> Anyways, yes. let's go to uh, Karen and hear your thoughts. Karen in Ventura, you're on the air. Uh, hi, can you hear me? Yes, sorry, this is Karen in San Carlos. 
Yes, Karen in St. Carlos. Hi, thank you. Um, I wanted to get your perspective on one issue that I've seen as a big generational wedge locally is around building more housing. Um, there is, in California in particular, but around the world, there's been really a squeeze on um, the availability of housing for new generations. And what we often encounter is uh, a sort of not-in-my-backyard not or NIMBY-type reaction from folks in older generations, um, all, all the while complaining that uh, younger people are stuck in, in their parents' basements. Um, and so it, this is one uh, divide I've seen among people who otherwise share very similar values. So I was wondering if you could comment on that and if you've seen that. Bobby, go ahead. We've got a, just a couple minutes, so shorter answer. Yeah. Yes. No. I mean, that's it's a really great it's a really great point, and it is something that you do see, and we see it in the UK as well. It is exactly that, um, and it's it is a it is a strange one about the motivations because what what I would be trying to point out in the book is that older people do have a sense of connection to younger people. They do care about their their uh, their own kids and their grandkids, and getting them onto that housing ladder is a really important thing for them. But when you're talking about more in generalities across populations, that tendency to have that nimbyism uh, does kick in. And that is pretty constant across different countries in which which I've looked at this. So it is slightly about making the case. I've done some more detailed work, policy work on this in local areas. It is about making the case and personalizing it to your own kids and your own grandkids and trying to get that, that message across to resistant groups that um, these are the types of things that we need to do to benefit um, your kids and their grandkids. But it is a difficult sell because we do have that distinction between our own uh, family and then kids in general or future youth in general. Fascinating. We're talking about generational stereotypes with Bobby Duffy. He's the author of The Generation Myth. He's also a professor of public policy and the director of the Policy Institute at King's College. We want to hear from you. Share your ideas. Are there real differences between generations? Do you think when you're born shapes who you are? How? Give us a call. 888-766-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at KQED. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about generational stereotypes with Bobby Duffy. He's the author of The Generation Myth. And we're now also joined uh, by Reniqua Allen Lamphere. She's a producer and journalist and the author of It Was All a Dream. A new generation confronts the broken promise to Black America. So welcome into the conversation, Reniqua. Hi, thanks for having me here. I'm curious if you can add a little bit to the conversation in terms of how race is often a missing part of this conversation in general thinking in general. Yeah, that's a great question. It's why I decided to write this book. I mean, I, you know, am really intrigued by the generational question. Full disclosure, I'm a millennial, a very old millennial, (laughs) Um, like the oldest millennial you can be. Um, But in kind of all these conversations about narcissism and avocado toast, I felt like there was a specificity that, that was lacking. And, and I agree with Bobby that some of it felt like it was useful, but some of it did feel like marketing. There was, for me, when it came to the experience, particularly of black and brown young people in America, the stories I was hearing was about Lena Dunham. It was about avocado toast when a lot of members of these groups couldn't relate to any of that. And so I decided uh, that I wanted to explore that a little more because I really felt like millennial was becoming this kind of catch-all phrase for young, white, and and largely middle-class people. And uh, I think that's a a real problem in the way we're labeled. And lots of generational conversations, I think, can trend that way. And uh, there was really a lack of specificity and nuance uh, that I felt was in the conversation that wasn't productive. And how then is a black mil- black millennial, excuse me, misunderstood in your opinion? I think there's some specificity to, you know, when race and like like anything, when race becomes involved. Um, you know, things like education, things like home ownership, for example, you see a dramatic difference. And you still see that um in the experience of black millennials, and particularly, you know, you look at like a lot of studies and and black millennials are just left behind at, at rates that are higher than any other group. So I think that adding race into the equation can give us some more clues about what it does mean to be a millennial um, in America. And and things like, you know, there's a huge racial wealth gap. Um, That's not taken into account when when statistics start to say, well, millennials are doing better, they're buying homes now. Um, Or, you know, millennials will you know, be evened out because, you know, there's lots of talk and, and and this is true economically how millennials were left behind. But at the same time, there's about to be a great transfer of wealth to the millennial generation from their parents and the boomer generation. And studies show that black young people and black millennials will get left behind out of that transfer. So I'm I'm urging us to like, just rethink the the kind of big generalizations that we make about all these generations so that we can get some specificity and some nuance. And I think that will give us some more insight because I agree that there is some use in in generations. Um, I'm certainly different. My mom is a boomer. There's a difference in the way, you know, we are of the same race, but there is a way that we see the world that is different. Um, So I think there is some use to that. But when you just kind of have this catch-all phrase that that is very attractive uh, to people who are marketing or, you know, who want to see clicks on articles and, you know, when you're talking about, and, and they're fun. I, I click on some of those stories too, but I think for, for some more understanding, we, we really do need to be a little more precise in the terminology that we're using. I think Jay, a caller, he touches on this. Jay, go ahead. Jay and Santa Rosa, you're on the air. 
Yeah, um, they them pronouns, by the way. But um, yes, so I, I guess my question is just, and you've basically answered it in what you were just saying, but that if the middle class is is disappearing and there's less and less people able to work to afford to buy a home, um, it, are the attributes that we're seeing as these separations, are they actually just class attributes? Um, and I, I guess what what the last person was just saying, it kind of negates that in that um, it is it's race and it's class and uh, maybe also generation. Would you agree there, Reniqua? Yeah, I absolutely agree that, you know, there's, I mean, I was just shocked by, because I do think like the millennial generation gets, you know, labeled as overeducated and the amount of people that go to college and particularly the amount even of young people that finish college because, you know, student debt has been increasing so much is incredibly low. So I, I absolutely agree that um, it, you know, class is a huge part of it. And I think, you know, also what was frustrating me is that, you know, a lot of these stories of millennials were, were showing, and I'm obviously being specific to the millennial generation, but we're shown either, you know, living in these cool places and cities like New York or, or, you know, in the Bay or in our popular culture, when a lot of millennials, and particularly when you look at class, also don't actually live. They live in suburbs. You know, they don't like live in cities. They don't all have fancy media jobs. So I, I, I absolutely agree with that comment. Well, Anna tweets, despite the influential nature of boomers in politics, policy for older citizens is lacking. Many people are impoverished by costs of aging and long-term care denies dignity to so many. Any insight on this disconnect, Bobby? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is that is a reality that there is an incredible spread within these generations in terms of um, their their wealth and resources. I mean, just reflecting back on the previous discussion, it's absolutely the case that this, the, the economic story of the last 20 or 30 years has been wage stagnation uh, coupled with an enormous growth in private wealth um, through housing booms and but other other mechanisms as well. But and it's and the element of that that's been really important is it's concentrated at the top of the generational spectrum with baby boomers, but it's concentrated within a few people within that baby boomer um, spectrum. So that's the problem. Is And, and exactly, as Renika was saying, it, it, the, the story of the next 20 years is going to be how that flows down across generations, um, it, down into next generation. It's going to flow down incredibly unevenly it's because it's going to be those who have resources, from their parents are going to be set up much more than uh, than we've had in the past, just because of this increase in the world. So the real worry is that we are moving towards an incipient caste system where your your life chances are related to your familiar resources in a way that we just we haven't seen before because of this increase in wealth concentration at the top of the spectrum, but only among a few people at the top of that spectrum. So that mechanism um, is absolutely vital to understand the next 10, 20 years, I'd say. A scary future, potentially, in terms of more inequity. Well, I can't help but bring uh, Michelle's comment in here because she's a Gen Xer. She says, I'm labeled as a Gen X. We are the self-sufficient generation. Our mothers divorced our fathers at a record-breaking pace because of financial laws protecting women and the women's movement. We learned not to invest a lot of faith in institutions like marriage, higher education, or money. Perhaps that has something to do with why we are leaning against the wall and rolling our eyes at everyone else. Uh, Let's bring in uh, Kayla. I think she 
has a great question about all this. Kayla from Oakland, go ahead. Um, I was actually, it was a comment last question about the cusp generation. Um, I'm technically, I've been told I'm an exemial since I'm 81 and I'm like the very beginning of the, you know, without technology and then the introduction of technology and how we're like a, a, a different type of breed. I don't know if there's any truth to the cusp generations and that's all. That's is there any truth? I mean, she's close to me. I'm 1978. She's 1981. We're labeled as two different generations, but I would guess that we're actually pretty similar. I'm also an exenial. Um, <laughs> right, I'm, as you pointed out. Um, so I, will, I will let Bobby take this, but my husband's born in 1980. And like, you know, we... Who you know? I, I I I there's some commonalities, but like, is he so off? This is when I, I take to Bobby's point that some of this is a little bit of hogwash. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby, a little bit of hogwash. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think the precision that is implied by it is. I mean, look, this is this goes back to the point about any social classification is artificial. The boundaries, at least, are artificial to some degree, and you need to bear that in mind that you're going to have at. at towards the the boundaries you're going to have characteristics of both and the distinctions between each are, are going to be more blurry and i think that's 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 the way to think of it the trouble is the labels get such a sense of certainty and then get these adjectives attached to them or very definitive views of behavior that it becomes hard to see this more as a gradation than a really firm eye on one or the other but then i do go back to the point about in some ways it is partly about in group out group the stories we tell ourselves uh, less about um, the precision of these as, as social science uh, theories, and that that is a that's the thing. I'm seeing tweets um, about the show right now where people are slightly berating us for skipping over Gen X, um, Leslie. In, in our, <laughs> I'm in a our Gen Xer. I care about. Us. <laughs> I know. Yeah, me too. But we do just automatically skip over. So people do have that kind of badge of connection to it, which is more emotional than it is about the, the precision of a of a social trend. The reality. Well, David writes, it's undoubtedly the events and economics a generation experiences that shapes their worldview and perspective. I'm interested in your opinion on how COVID will shape the generation of kids growing up through it. Will they be more fearful and will it be called the COVID generation? Do you think, Bobby? Yeah, it's a really good question. And that is, I did a, a long read piece for the new scientists on exactly that about generation COVID and the extent to which it is going to be a shaping factor. And I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that generation COVID has a much greater chance of being a legitimate source of um, generational definition than the TikTok generation or the Nintendo generation or any other kind of tech ones. This is a, this is a real generational event as the big sociological thinkers like Karl Mannheim, who gives a lot of our thinking about generations today, would think about it. He, he talked about how trauma is, big traumas are the things that really shape generational identity, whether that's wars or economic crises. And I think in COVID, we do have elements of that with, we saw the mental, the impact on mental health um, from the crisis and how concentrated that's been among younger people, some of the economic effects more concentrated among younger people at that kind of formative age, some of the social effects more broadly concentrated among that young group. So yes, I think we won't know for a while. I mean, this is where it's less about trying to grab a, a headline and a label 
and more about trying to study this. We won't know for a while what the knock-on effects are, but certainly it's something that we should be looking at really closely. You're listening to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg in today for Mina Kim. And we're talking about generational stereotypes with Bobby Duffy. He's the author of The Generation Myth and Reniqua Allen Lamphere. She's a producer and journalist and author of It Was All a Dream, A New Generation Confronts the Broken Promise to Black America. I'm curious how the American dream differs potentially for black millennials. Reniqua. Yeah, um, I was interested in that too, uh, to see if there was a difference in the way that, you know, we kind of understood, you know, understood those ideas, if there was a generational uh, shift at all. I mean, for me, when looking at generations, and and one of the reasons I did it is to try to understand the experience of Black America and how that's changed over time. And uh, there was remarkably more frustration. I think one of the things when we're looking at generations today is while some attitudes um, may not have shifted as, as much as we think they are. And I do agree with that. Uh, sometimes those voices are amplified because we have social media now in ways that you know, generations didn't have in ways that I, you know, as an exennial didn't have growing up. Um, so I think that what's happening in America, what's happening, you know, around race, uh, some of these issues are amplified more. We're seeing more videos when I was growing up, for example, you know, I grew up in, in New Jersey and, you know, there was like video of, of Rodney King, uh, the man who got beaten in, in LA. Uh, but it, and I, I probably saw it on the evening news. Maybe I saw it on CNN, but there's, a sense of things being in your face more now just because of the way our our media is now. And I think that is informing this generation, whether it's Gen Z, whether it's millennials and the next generation in ways and giving them a language um, to speak and a voice in, in ways that previous generations didn't have. And I think probably giving them some anxiety um, in, in ways that uh, previous generations didn't have. All that to say is that um, I, I was seeing a sense of frustration, but I also saw a sense of when it comes to the American dream, but I saw the sense of things are always gonna be this way. So for me, a lot of my work for, uh, for my book was kind of confirming racial you know, there was a myth of, of the dream, like that it hadn't changed it, that in general, you know, young black people are more optimistic. Um, and there are some of the, they're more optimistic, actually, um, the, the black millennials than any group, but they, um, you know, were frustrated. And they're and still facing of, challenges. Yeah, of course. Well, that moves well into into Mike's question here. He says, how does social media's promotion of polarizing views affect the perception of the generational divide? Bobby? Yeah, hugely. I mean, I, I think that goes back to this point of um, thinking of uh, our, the way that we denigrate youth is a constant of history. Um, but uh, that so that, that goes throughout time. We can go through every age and see that. But uh, social media and the media, and particularly the kind of polarized environment where we know that extreme views or more emotional views or more conflicted views travel further and farther, um, faster. further and faster than um, uh, than uh, more moderate views, then we're kind of incentivized to come up with these cliches and um, 
stereotypes and myths and play them off against each other. And that's, that is a period effect. And I kind of, like that, that is not a true generational difference. It's kind of, that would have happened to the division between um, any generation at any point, if you had that sort of more fractious uh, social media and media environment. So I think that's really important because we kind of get this sense of an increasing generational culture war or uh, concern about climate change creating these big divisions between young and old. But when you actually look at the data, there's not nearly as much difference as you would uh, guess from the rhetoric that you see on social media and, and people facing off against each other. So really important to bear in mind that, yes, that's a context effect, a period effect, much more than a true generational divide. And is there the potential? We talk a lot about how social media and technology and information and all these things are creating these huge, huge divides in our society. But is there the potential that it's also doing the opposite? For example, could could moral progress be speeding up? We saw the civil rights movement last took quite some time. The women's movement was shorter. The the LGBT movement towards gay marriage was much shorter. Could that also be a sign that moral progress is potentially speeding up? Yes, no, I think I think that is an element of um, uh, this, the the speed of progress on these types of social issues does look different. But I mean, you, you have to bear in mind as well that that's looking from our vantage point now. But the uh, speed of change looking forwards more from the 1940s and 50s and 60s, that was incredible, too. I mean, it was um, it is incredible that uh, you don't have to look too far back to see views on women's roles or race or or uh, sexuality that would look incredibly out of date, um, uh, even going back 20 years, not even going back that far. So, yes, absolutely, we have got this accelerating social change and the environment is, uh, the media environment, social media environment is definitely a contributing factor to that. Um, But so, yes, it's not all bad. It's not all bad, um, but I'm sure there's more we could do to manage the bad elements of the information environment that we have now and still keep the good. I'd like to jump in there really quickly with that because I actually disagree Um, because I think, and this is where I think actually uh, the statistics actually bear out and this is why I think it's so important that we do look at things like, you know, race and class and, and, and gender when we're talking about generations because systematically I think things are, you know, not that different and I will just point to Kenosha and other places where, you know, actually, you know, it, for, for millennials and black millennials in general, we are in the same position that uh, our parents were. We got to go, folks. Thank you so much for a great show. Bobby Duffy and Reniqua allen Lamphere. thank you for your time. Stay with us. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.